Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. We are in episode 51. 51. I'm Chad. I'm Liz. That's who we are. That is, in fact, who we are. In episode 51, we are starting a brand new novel, The Republic of Thieves by the inimitable, slightly salty Mr. Scott Lynch. So we will be covering chapters one and chapters two, as well as the interludes that precede them, and we are getting hot and heavy into some Locke Lamora Jean Tan in action. That's right. And on our next book club, we are going to read through and including chapter four. I love me some Jean and Locke flashbacks, childhood flashbacks. You know what? Definitely the highlight of what we read so far, for sure. So I'm going to start with our spoiler policy. Yes. So our spoiler policy is that Liz has read this series, everything up through the end of The Republic of Thieves, multiple times. I have not read these books, so I am unspoiled. So we will not spoil anything past chapter two of The Republic of Thieves. So what was your overall impression, just in a few words, of this section that we read today? Refreshing. I can do it in one word. How very concise of you. Thank you. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll ruin it later. Yeah, I mean, we, we had some mixed feelings about Red Seas under Red Skies. There were definitely parts of it. And, and I really, for me, I would put this series definitely in my top five new fantasy fiction, possibly even in my top five overall fantasy s- series. And for me, even there are parts of Red Seas that I have trouble with that it drags a little bit. So I feel like we came off of that book with some mixed opinions. But Republic of Thieves for me does start out in a in a way that's refreshing. I like the return to the childhood flashbacks, and we'll get more into that later. But yeah, agreed. I think the thing for me that's interesting is that when we first started Red Seas under Red Skies, those first couple of chapters. I was really positive about it, you know, and I think because we we were in a new area, but we didn't need as much building up of the characters. We could kind of get right into it. And we had that really cool scene with the Bonds Magi and all the people in the in this market. And I was like, this is this is really good kind of beginning. I like where this is going to go. To me, it didn't really fulfill the promises but I also want to sort of give a little bit, I want to give a little bit of grace to the book. It may very well be that some of those things are going to be resolved in this book or later books. So so I got that. But we're not here to talk about Red Seas Under Red Skies. We are finished. We closed the door on it. Right. But if you'll remember, and it was so hard because I don't want to give stuff away, but time after time as we're going through Red Seas, I kept saying, just, you just have to wait till the third book. You just have to read the third book. So just read the third book. Well, I'm going to have to now. <laughs> kind of committed myself. Well, starting with the prologue. We did read the prologue, yes. 
Yes, yes, we did read the prologue. So the prologue is called "The Minder." Yes, yeah, slightly funny story. This is not the first time we've attempted to record this podcast episode. <laughs> so we tried to record it the other night, and then I realized when Liz started talking about some prologue that I had simply prologue? opened up. What's a prologue? Like, What's a prologue? <laughs> I read on an ebook, and I simply went to chapter one and started reading a chapter one. And he nodded along for quite some time as I'm just, <laughs> and I, after a minute I go, he's letting me talk for a long time. He's not jumping he's in not at all. He's not generally, it's this polite. great. <laughs> he doesn't mansplain anything me, to me. I didn't read this part. <laughs> and then, oh. and then Elizabeth broke her microphone and I was like, we were like, you know what, we're and I thought we weren't going to tell anyone about that, but here we are. No, everything's out there. We are we are an open book, transparent. <laughs> so, yes, I did, in fact, read the prologue, and the rest of the section made a lot more sense. I can't even imagine what you must have thought, jumping in, being introduced to Sabatha in chapter one, not in the prologue. That It's funny. It was weird, for sure. So the prologue is called The Minder. And we open in Shades Hill, way back to when, right after Locke joined the gang of orphans living there. So there's a gang of orphans. They're living in a graveyard under the watch of this creepy old dude named the Thief Maker who's training them to be pickpockets. And Locke is the, the best and worst of the bunch. He's the most gifted at stealing, but the least gifted at knowing when it's appropriate to steal and how much it's okay to steal and who it's okay to steal from. So this is the the thief maker's problem with Locke. He doesn't want to kill him or just let him go out there and be killed because he thinks he can make a lot of money off of him. However, he's not sure how to rein him in. So that's kind of the, we get reminded of this is the scenario that, that yeah, this boy and, is in. And what happens here in this prologue, to kind of summarize the, the plot fairly quickly, is that the thief maker has a couple of his orphans that are going to be hung and he decides to you know make the best of a really shitty situation a really dark situation and he knows that lots of people are going to come out for the hanging it's perfect hanging weather so they're going to go ahead and get everybody on the streets at one time and they're going to do a massive pickpocket now the way this relates to Locke is that because Locke is the best and the worst, he ends up in sort of the rejects group. And the person that they have to put to take care of the rejects group is one of the best thieves in in, uh, in the hill, and that is Beth. Correct. So Locke and his associates, Tam and, wait for it, No Teeth. <laughs> I'm sure that's what his mama called him. <laughs> I'm sure she called him No Teeth. No Teeth, who is so stupid that he couldn't shit in his hands if they were stitched to his asshole, which is what? sick. Scott Lynch has the sickest burns. Y you have to give me that. He definitely has the sickest burns in all of fantasy. For sure. Though I have I ha a running list of sick Scott Lynch burns and no one to use them on because the people in my life are too nice. <laughs> well, here, here's the problem with that particular burn. I'm not sure that I would ever want to shit in my hands. So, so maybe You're he's not- You're overthinking the burn, Chad. Maybe he's not stupid at all. Maybe he's like, why do you want me to shit in my hands? Like, 
No, you're, you're overthinking the burn. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's a sick burn. So they go out and steal. They go out to steal. Like you said, the thief maker pulls Beth, who is the best of his thieves, to watch over these three troublemakers and tells her not to come back until they've all stolen something. And things are not going well. Locke is instantly smitten with Beth. She's something about her, her poise, her confidence. He's instantly taken with her, even though he's too young to really understand what a crush is or anything like that. And he really wants to impress her. The other two in their group are completely incapable of stealing. Tam is a crier and he gets very upset. And when they witness the hanging, the two other boys just completely break down. So something that really... Like you would. Like you would. When your friends are being hung in front of you. And that's what really stuck out to me in this flashback was Locke's reaction to the hanging. You know, and it says that he can't really understand why the other boys are getting so upset. I mean, he's not he's not a sociopath. He's not happy about it. But it says, you know, to him, dying seemed as ordinary to Locke as eating. He's just seen so much of it. He's completely desensitized to it. Yeah. And I think for me, when I compare the flashbacks in this book with the ones in Red Seas Under Red Skies, I feel like, for me, this is what Red Seas was missing. These flashbacks to their childhood, they have so much more of an emotional punch than the the flashbacks in Red Seas, which we're looking back on a like dark time months, in their lives, yeah. but like 18 months before, and yeah. it was relevant to the plot. Wasn't really as relevant. Well, I can't say it wasn't relevant to the characters, but you're right. It just didn't have the same emotional punch. There's such a poignant counterpoint here when you compare just these slick, confident con men that Locke and John are as adults and the brutal childhood that made them who they were. Yeah. And for me, that just, it's just so many feelings. It just provides a nice emotional resonance. So I dig the I dig the childhood flashbacks. Yep, and we end as we end so many chapters with Locke getting the absolute shit kicked out of him. Because what happens is he finds out or he hears from the other boys that, you know, after this caper is all over, that Beth has drowned and he just he doesn't want to believe it. He mouths off to some bigger boys and they just about cave his head in. And when he kind of goes night-night in his interlude is when we wake up in chapter one. Indeed. So the other thing that seemed important to me in this chapter is Locke talks quite a bit about rule one and rule two for living in the graveyard. Mm -hmm. And rule one is don't get noticed because he's constantly tormented by older and stronger kids. And rule two is when rule one fails, don't react to anything. It gets mentioned several times, and I feel like we're going to be able to see rule one and rule two as part of his character development. And I think it'll just be interesting to watch how you how think? we see that in his, in his adult character. You think so? I feel like you would know. It's been a while since I read this book. Hmm. Okay. Just something I didn't notice before. I think it's important. I'm sure it will be. Nothing happens in these opening prologues that doesn't have some relevance. I'm sure, I don't think Scott Lynch has the same sort of a, this is going to sound weird. I don't think Scott Lynch has the same sort of economy of words as Patrick Rothfuss. Mm -hmm. That sounds weird because 
Patrick Rothfuss write some long ass books. But in those really, really critical moments for Patrick Rothfuss, like no words are wasted. Right. I don't think Scott Lynch is quite to the same degree as a Patrick Rothfuss, but I don't think there's anything in that prologue that isn't meant to be there or doesn't shine some sort of light on the characters or what's going to happen. So we pick up in chapter one with Locke waking up in a sickbed. And it's a nice transition because he's been dreaming of the events that happened in the prologue. Yeah. And he wakes up and tells Jean that he was dreaming of her, the canonical her. Oh, that her. Am I your canonical her? Oh, absolutely. Good. (laughs) (laughs) So it turns out Locke has been poisoned after all. Yes. So my weird ass, wild, crazy bet that the poison was fake was completely inaccurate. And even though I hedged my bets and said, well, it doesn't make sense, but I'm going to, I'm going to say this anyway, I have to own up. I was wrong. Well, you were meant to think that, I believe. And in fact, somewhere in this chapter, it gets addressed. Jean even outright says something to the extent of, of all the things that the Archon lied about, why couldn't the poison have been one of them? And I thought that's directly addressing, there were a lot of people who wondered and thought that. Yeah, yeah. So the chapter is titled, Things Get Worse, which is kind of ominous. Yeah, and... And they do. I mean, this is sort of like the denouement that was sort of missing at the end of Red Seas Under Red Skies. But we begin this chapter with Locke Poison sitting in a bed, and it's like, oh my God, how can can it get any worse than this? He's, you know, he's gonna die. At the end of the chapter, it's worse. It, It is worse. It is definitively worse. So Locke and Jean are in Lachaine, which is an area that we have heard mentioned before. We have. They've talked about buying titles and becoming lords in Lachaine. So apparently Lachaine is... Something they should have done a long time ago. They should have. So Lachaine is known for being a place where you can buy anything. And they're trying to buy a cure for Locke unsuccessfully. And it's an interesting dynamic that we see here with Locke being pretty much ready to go at this point. He's not happy about being poisoned to death, but he's come to a place of acceptance and Jean is not ready to let him go. So we have a bit of the same dynamic we had at the beginning of Red Seas where Locke was just kind of sitting there uh, ready to die, but it was all sort of a self-inflicted drama going on there. And there's a subtle difference between that and what we have going on here. And it seems healthier. So I just like that the development in their relationship that we saw over Red Seas, and it was subtle, but we see it coming to a fruition here where they're fighting over keeping Locke alive, but it's not with the ugliness that they're, that they had in the last book. So I just really like this relationship and this brotherhood and watching it develop. The thing I liked about it is I get the sense that Lachaine is closer. I mean, we're we're very much in the beginning of kind of building this this city up, but it seems closer to what Camor was like. And so, despite the fact that we're in a different city, it seems more like a homecoming, and it seems more like what we're familiar with. Well, it's certainly not a freaking boat. 
Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Jean is fighting to keep Locke alive, and he is doing this by spending all of their money and doing everything he can to get every single doctor in the city to come and visit him. And the only one that hasn't is this this jerk Zodesti, who only will go to the most rich and the most famous people. And he's a jerk. He's a jerk. He's a jerk. So, of course, Jean, as you would expect, goes and kidnaps him. And one of my favorite lines of this chapter is, as he is maneuvering Zodesti out of his house, and there's a young woman who was there, and she is, do you know who my father is? As he's getting ready to shove her into a closet, and he just says, time is precious and my knife is sharp. When some servant finally opens that closet, do they find you alive or dead? Yeah, yeah. I was like, damn. Yeah, he's not playing around. That's John Tannen right there. Yeah, he is not playing around. So he's not playing around, yeah. Yeah, I liked how he snatched the guy at the gate, you know, worked his way in there. But alas, you don't get to kidnap even newly minted royalty in Lachine. And as soon as, you know, the guy comes in and says, there's nothing I can fucking do for you. And they decide to deposit him back, you know, mysteriously on the street. Within hours. I think it's the next day. It is the next day. Very soon. Which is technically hours, just more of them. So (laughs) the next day they get a gang shows up on their door, beats the shit out of them, says, you know, takes all their stuff and says, if you're not out by sundown, you know, we're going to basically kill you. Strips the room bare down to taking the blankets and the firewood. The firewood. Right? That's cold. That is. Literally cold. (laughs) Because they don't have firewood. So, yeah. I mean, they leave them in. So, not only are you poisoned, not not only are you, you know, probably a couple of days from dying, but now you have to leave the city with nothing but the clothes on your back. Indeed. And Locke can't walk in there. Locke, this whole time, has been trying to give Jean a chance to be okay after he dies. Yeah. And um, he says, I hid some money under a floor button. Jean says, nope. Yeah. I, I, I knew you would do that. And there were only so many hiding places within stumbling distance of the bed. So yeah. I, I found that and spent it on a doctor. And at this point, Locke is like, you, you have to go. You're not, you're not going to be able to steal a boat or a cart. You have to go. I'm not going to let you carry me. And John says, what are you going to fend me off with sarcasm? <laughs> like, yeah. What are you going to do? And at that point, they get a very interesting visitor. Yeah. So here we are at the place where, I mean, you're at the end of the world, if you're Locke, the end of your world. And now you have to walk out of this town with not a scrap of dignity left to you. And in your, if you're in Locke's case, you can't even walk. And now's when the Bonds Magi show up. So they're interrupted by a knock on the door. And they answer it. And it's a mysterious woman, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, who... It's clearly played by Meg Ryan. Meg Ryan. Have you seen her face lately? She she doesn't have she's not this character. I just no. said that to be oppositional. <laughs> I, <don't... laughs> I have strong feelings about this. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I have strong feelings about played by Kathleen Turner. Actresses aging, like mm-hmm. having an 
older woman who looks like an older woman. I think I think this should be played by Tina Fey. Are you just throwing female actresses out there? I'm just trying to get your to goat. Contrary. <laughs> yeah. You have here. Nah, here he is. <laughs> you have it. <laughs> what am I going to do with this fucking goat now? <laughs> I mean, I asked for this, but I didn't really want it. <laughs> Next time, don't fuck with my head cannon. That's what I get. <laughs> I, I get imaginary goats that now I had to fucking my take care of. My imaginary casting over here. Michelle Pfeiffer enters. You know, I almost got a real goat last Christmas. <laughs> I know you did. We went to a friend's Christmas party, and I very nearly left there with a goat. But that's a story for the other podcast. So Michelle Pfeiffer walks in the room, and pretty early in the conversation, lets them know she's a Bonds mage by quoting what the Bonds magi said through the puppets in the night market in the last book. They're kind of asking her who who she is. And uh, and she says, poor gentleman bastard, so far from home, but always in our sight. So pretty ominous way to introduce yourself. Yeah. But it turns out she really doesn't have anything to be afraid of with them because her her magic is able to trick Jean's mind into not being able to see her when she doesn't want him to. Jean pretty promptly slams a knife into her back because he doesn't want any of her shit. And finds that she's not actually there. So we've seen this kind of power before with the Bonds Magi. They mess with people's perception of reality. It turns out she's about as high up in the Bonds Magi's hierarchy as you can get. Indeed. And she reveals something interesting about the Falconer. Because when Locke mentions, hey, you know, we've gotten one of you guys before too... She says, you just happened to be present when the Falconer's terrible judgment finally got the best of him. And she explains to them that it wasn't what they did to the Falconer that drove him mad. It was his attempt to do a spell to escape from physical pain that went wrong, that caused his madness. So that's an interesting little tidbit right there. So they're off the hook, right? Totally. Yeah. No harm, no foul. Yeah. It's not our fault. Actually, it's quite a bit of harm, quite a bit of foul, but... Several fingers, in fact. <laughs> I mean, did they take his toes, too? Cause like... We also find out that there are factions within the Bonds Magi, and this is an explanation as to why the Bonds Magi didn't just outright kill Locke and John, why they've just been kind of messing with them a little bit. You know, we've speculated quite a bit up to now why these seemingly all-powerful mages aren't doing more with what they can with, with with their powers this is all very interesting to me in a couple of ways because we we really have basically two things to go on when it comes to to bonds mages we have our experience with the falconer and we have a couple of secondhand stories from chains that's it and those stories are quite limited pretty old for the most part and they don't really give us any glimpse into the society at all they're vengeful they can destroy kingdoms and then we have the falconer who was a giant fucking dick like that's what we know about these people so for all we know they're all like that or this guy could be you know like the heel of the entire bonds magi community we we don't know but we find out through this woman who calls herself Patience, although she 
when she introduces herself to them, it's through some kind of weird Jedi mind meld, like gelfling sharing of <laughs> senses. It says her name is is something that means sewing of silk and basically a seamstress. She called herself seamstress. But now that she's a five ringer, she calls herself Patience. It's a title. And she also tells them that there are factions within the Bonds Magi and that the Falconer's supporters wanted to go out and kill Locke and John, but she stopped them and kept them to only being able to mess with them. She also lets us know that the Falconer is her son. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, that's how, the, that's how the chapter ends. I know him very well. He's my son. He came out of my vagina <laughs> one time. This one time, me and the falconer were hanging out. He was in my uterus. <laughs> right on the table. It was good times. <laughs> Just shit on the table. Oh, we're not going to talk about shit on the table. So It's a little too real. So this was very, uh, a, a little soap opera-like. He's my son. He's my son. You know, all I need now is for someone to get amnesia, for someone to be someone's secret twin. You know. Hey, it's only chapter two. So. You don't know. So now we essentially have three data points on the Bonds Magi. We still don't really know shit. So we really have no idea if anything this woman is saying is true. No idea. We'll have to keep reading. Yeah, that's all we can do. But before we can find out, we have an interlude called The Undrowned Girl. And this is the best part of the of the section for me. Yeah. What'd you like about it? I liked that I got some time with Kahlo and Galdo and Chains. Yes. Like, I, I mean, I like those characters so much in the lives of Locke Lamora. And when you kill them off and we don't get them anymore... In Red Seas under Red Skies, that never really got replaced. No, I mean, the the humor of the Sansas and their relationship and just that. And the mentorship and fathership of Chains and like, yep. that's one of the few genuinely good relationships. And in Red Seas under Red Skies, Jean and Locke are, they're like brothers, but they're like brothers who fight all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's... I mean, that's, and that's the best relationship you have, you know, that's as good as it gets, you know, Jean gets a girlfriend. That's it. I mean, so to get back and have those relationships again and get to spend time with chains and, and all of that is very, very refreshing. And the other thing is Sabbatha finally shows up on screens. Now we know that. The Beth from the Prelude is Sabatha. She didn't drown. She finally shows up on screen, albeit in a flashback, but we spent two books knowing that this character was going to be hugely important, but deliberately and conveniently kept off screen the entire time. Right. So, yeah, this was this was a nice interlude. I mean, what happens in the interlude is essentially that Beth shows up, Locke realizes he's still madly crazy in love, and then they they go out on a mission to steal something, and Locke doesn't realize this is all a setup, 
but Locke, but Beth gets caught, and Locke, rather than letting her get suffered and tortured, has to go in and give her a poison so she can die peacefully, but it's all just a test. That's what happens in the plot, but that's not really all that important to me when I'm reading it. I just, it's just this refreshing sort of homecoming feeling and some relief to get Beth. We also finally get to have the edges filled in around this relationship with Sabatha, which has been, I, I mean, not, I, I'm saying we're beginning to fill in. Yeah, agreed. agreed. Uh, we, we're not filled in at this point, but up until now, we've had two whole books of the main character pining over and talking about this woman that that we, that we haven't met. We well, don't. We have no context for his feelings, and, and we we know a little bit about their relationship. We know it went sour. We know he's he can't never be with anyone else, but we don't know why why he feels that way about her. So now it's nice to be like, okay, we're finally going to get to see what led up to that. Yeah, absolutely. The thing about it, I'd like to point out conveniently, is Scott Lynch deliberately kept her out of the picture. He didn't have to, <laughs> you know, like that was a choice he made to con- to keep her off screen. He could have given us that earlier. Remember back in, in like the whole first half of our coverage of Lies Lock- yes. of Locke Lamora and you kept every, <laughs> every prediction episode. was like, I think the dark shape is going to be a girl and it's going to be the love. No, I think this week we're going to meet the love interest. No, <laughs> yeah. no, next next chapter we're gonna, maybe it'll be in the next book. It'll be Sabbath. <laughs> nope, nope. And then at the end you went. You know what? I don't even think she's going to be in Red Seas under Red Sky. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, but you were joking because you could, and you were right. But now we get to meet her finally, and and she's a bitch. She's a bit of a bitch <laughs> in in this part. <laughs> All right, in this part, I was te- I was actually teasing. I don't I don't think she is. Okay, I, some people do, but I like this character. So, so going back a little and talking about her some more, we're introduced to her again when Locke has recently joined the Gentleman Bastards. He's still kind of getting his feet under him, and he knows that there's another member named Sabatha. But he hasn't put two and two in his mind that this is the same Beth that he knew in Shades Hill. Yeah. So when she returns one day unexpectedly and it's her, he's, of course, struck. And I think one thing we didn't mention when we were talking about the prologue is the scene where Beth is taking the three boys out and the one of the boys knocks a cap off of her head. She's got all her hair bound up in this cap and he can see that while her hair has been dyed brown it's her roots are red and the sight of her red hair is like just strikes him down with joy he just loves it he he's he's into redheads which we know but now we know that that's something that started when he was eight Sabatha walks in and it seems evident right away that she's um she's one of these people who is pretty much good at everything she tries right away. Kind of just naturally talented in a lot of areas. Yeah. And she's used to being the boss of this outfit. She kind of comes in right away with like like an older sister sort of bossiness. She kind of seems like she's maybe Chain's favorite a little bit. And that, so that's the dynamic. And she's 
pretty dismissive of Locke, not unkind, but she's kind of like, oh, hey, well, it's and, that kid that burned down an inn. Yeah, and that, well, that is something that I think is important, is that in the prologue, she is pretty dismissive of Locke. And then in this interlude, she begins being, she's not at all rude in any way, but she's like, oh, hey, look at you, you little scamp. You little rapscallion, you know, right. like she's not really looking at him as any kind of equal and there's no reason why she should. And we go through this thing that's very difficult and kind of emotionally difficult for Locke, but everybody else, this is just kind of par for the course. So you're setting up this dynamic. And, and I joked when I said she's a bitch because it's just a very common thing with these sort of male characters where when they're love is unrequited, the female instantly becomes, quote, a bitch, not because of anything she's done, but simply because she does not share the same level of love that the protagonist does. And I'm sure that Scott Lynch is aware of that. I don't think he's... He's he's keeping her at an arm's distance from him for a reason. I don't know exactly what it is. But that's the sort of way the relationship is being set up from the outset. Right. And so Chains, I think, kind of notices that Locke seems very enamored of Sabatha. And he sets him up for a test. And it's a test that he has apparently done to every member of his gang. He doesn't tell Locke this. And he doesn't tell him that it's a test. But he tells him that he wants him to go on a mission to steal a certain necklace. And in the course of the mission, Sabatha gets kidnapped by what Locke thinks are agents of the Duke. But they're actually friends of Chains. So they stage this kidnapping to see whether or not Locke is going to be willing to sacrifice a member of his team in order to protect the rest of them and to protect himself. Seems like an appropriate test for an eight-year-old. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, add some clambering about on slippery rooftops. Crawling across a narrow plank. I mean, this jumping g- off a balcony. This guy is parent material. I mean, that's third grade right there. <laughs> like, I don't know what your kids are doing in school. Well, you know, when we homeschool them, that's what we teach them for. <laughs> Be little rapscallions, little scallywags. So Locke is put to an impossible task. He's put in a situation that he's not going to be able to manipulate or win in any way. And so that's part of the test as well to see how he's going to be able to handle that. And he does pass, but he's pissed. Because again, that's the kind of test you give to an adult, not an eight year old. Right. But you know, we've seen these children have to deal with situations that, that adults could not deal with. That children should not have to deal with. Right. And that's kind of, kind of a main part of this book no yeah good point how do we have these characters who grew up in the worst of the worst situation and have them become people who are i mean they're thieves and scoundrels and criminals but they're emotionally healthy you know they're not perfect by any means but they have healthy relationships and they like communicate with each other that's what i i love like especially between Locke and John, who are 
constantly fighting throughout the last book, but they talk about their feelings, Yeah, you know, and they can communicate with each other and they have a family bond. And that's for me, that's what's so beautiful about this book is it's not just gang of thieves who are witty and funny for the sake of being a gang of thieves. It's, it's about their relationships with each other. Yeah. So Locke, though, at the end, vows he is never going to lose again. Never lose again. Okay. That's a great idea. It's just like when I was eight years old and I stormed out into the living room after bedtime and said, I am never going to sleep again. (laughs) Never. Never. (laughs) Oh, gosh. If only we could just sleep all the time now. Oh. One other thing I noticed reading this chapter is when Sabatha returns, they have a toast to her return and Chains is doing sort of his ritually thing where he pours a glass. He blows into his palm and says, my words, my breath, these things bind my promise. And then he goes on to promise to throw some gold into the sea for Sabatha's return. These are the same words that Jean speaks over Esri's body when he promises to avenge her. At the yep. end of Red mm-hmm. Seas. So yeah. I just, I like the the little, um, the consistency of the rituals and the, and the words that they use. Mm. Well done. So chapter two? Chapter two is called The Business. And we're back with Patience explaining why she and her son don't get along. She doesn't go into detail, but she says, The Falconer was my antagonist in all philosophies, magical or otherwise. And then she fixes Jean with her bit me dead eye stare her archer's eyes bit me right on the nipple it was nine months old bringing up bad memories and i and i kicked him out (laughs) go be a bonds my giant this other clan (laughs) nothing to do with you so she also drops a, a a bomb on Locke and jean and tells them that she can cure him which is something that every physician that they've seen has said, hey, you know, the bond's magi. And they're like, Ugh. But she tells them that she can. it's not too late. She can still cure him. She wants them to do a job for her. And she says to them, you keep presuming that my powers are infinite where they concern your discomfort. Why not give me the credit to think that I might be able to help you as well? So Locke doesn't want a letter. He's like, hell no. No. I'm ready. I've yeah. been ready. Uh-huh. I'm not dealing with your shit. No. And it just reminds me of a line in the Lies of Locke Lamora in the very beginning where the thief maker is describing him and saying, you could cut his throat and the, <laughs> the physician could be sewing him up and he would steal the thread and die laughing. So we see a little yeah. bit of that here. Like this kid who, and that's why I think in the prologue, the whole thing with his rule one and his rule two really sticks with me because how does a kid turn from that from that scared orphan under the hill don't get noticed and if you do get noticed don't react to anything to saying fuck you to the most powerful woman in the world probably at who's death's willing door. Yeah. at death's door who's, who's telling you she's going to save your life and you're like no I'd rather die literally would rather die well they are brought I mean, into a situation that is, you know, uh, the ch- the choices literally are, and we haven't talked about what the Bonds Magi's 
wants them to do. But the choices are do something that is pretty much directly in opposition of the mandates of your God, help your enemies, and with no guarantee that they're not going to stab you in the back, you already know they hate, hate you, or die. Like, so that's very interesting that you said that. And I want to, I want to come back to why you think that what they're asking him to do is opposing the mandates. Mm -hmm. But let's talk first about Jean and Locke and their little confrontation that they finally have. But that's very interesting. I definitely want to ask you more about that. So Locke doesn't want to do it. Jean puts his hand over Locke's face and says, he wants to hear more. He's very excited to hear the whole thing. <laughs> this is the, the last chance that, that Jean has been hoping for yeah. and working for. So what Patience wants them to do is to adjust an election. Pretty much says, from the top to the bottom, I need the whole thing rigged. And she explains to them that the government of Carthane is made up of a council, basically. There are two factions, and there's all this jockeying over which faction is going to hold more seats on the council. Mm -hmm. And she wants her faction to have more seats, obviously. And that the factions kind of correspond to the two different factions among the Bonds Magi. The Bonds Magi look at this as their sport. Adjusting this election is sort of their their Quidditch, their... <laughs> Their NFL, whatever. Mm -hmm. Their sports ball. It's sports ball, baby. It's sports ball, adjusting this election, but they aren't allowed to use their powers. So that's another interesting aspect that gets discussed, and it's something we've speculated about why the Bonds Magi don't just rule the world or, or and, you know, kind of take over. And she explains to them that they don't really want to. And she says to Jean, which I thought that was so interesting, are you smarter than a cow? And he says, yes. And she said, well, why don't you walk down to the to the barnyard over there and put a crown on your head and call yourself king of the cows? Yeah. Basically saying, like, we're superhuman. You're barely human. It doesn't... We don't care. We don't care about you enough yeah. to rule over you, is what she says to them. Yeah. But they like to adjust this election. And she explains that they have to have very strict rules among themselves, with all of them being so powerful, that they never, ever, ever use their powers on each other. Ever. So they work through proxies, and she wants Jean and Locke to be her proxy, her party's proxy, to adjust this election. And Locke says, my dead ass, that's what you really want. You want something else. And we have no way of knowing whether or not Locke is right. Indeed, but we do know that Jean is going to do anything in his power to save Locke, even yeah. if Locke doesn't really want to be saved. So he sends patients out of the room and he, and he and Locke sort of have this come to Jesus moment where Jean is like, look, and he puts some hard truths out there and he says, you know, you can't stand still. You know, when you're not sick, you can take over the world. But as soon as you start convalescing, it's like, he calls it the Enlichtgelaben. Say it. Enlichtgelaben. No, I'm not gonna. It's a great word. I'm not, you can't make me. It's yet another word that I wish was real. So he, he, he talks about this thing. It's basically a death wish. He says, Locke, you've got a death wish. And... <laughs> I 
I just pictured Charles Bronson in the conversation. Right in that second, I (laughs) pictured him. I've got Death Wish 2 and 3 on VHS. (laughs) I don't have the original. Thanks for pouring salt in my wounds, John. (laughs) How else is Lashane going to get victory back for the small folk? They don't have a Charles Bronson to take it back from the thugs. <laughs> you punks. You killed my Bonds Magi. <laughs> I will take you all out with booby traps. I may have taken that too far. That was a left turn right there. Yeah, but you know, it's late. <laughs> it's late. Charles Bronson imitations happen I when mean, it gets this late. It's late and we're getting punchy. I think this is gonna I think this is gonna end well. And we have a game later too. Oh yes. All right, so Locke has and Lichtgelaben. We've established that. I'm not saying it. <laughs> and Jean asks him, what is he going to tell Chains, Galdo, Callow, Bug, and Esri? And he says, What are you gonna tell the woman that I love when you get to wherever you're going, and you have to explain to her that you threw away your life, that she sacrificed her life for. Yeah. And Locke's like, damn, because that's cold. Summer love. Indeed. Every time Esri's brought up now, I'm just going to sing songs from Greece. You know, that was the only poontang John's gotten in a really <laughs> long time, okay? It was important. Don't poo-poo it. So Locke is appropriately shamed and tell me more, he says tell me more. he says, Get get patience back here. I need her to fix me so I can punch your guts into soup. <laughs> which I like. And he agrees to do it. But he wants patience to agree to give him answers to any questions that he asks. And she agrees to answer any questions about her craft, but not about her personal life. Which I thought was a very clever storytelling thing that he can avoid Patients having to do a lot of like uncharacteristic exposition to explain stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was like, oh, that's pretty smart. I liked it too, just because, you know, selfishly, I want to know. Right. We all want to know. And it would be weird for this character, though, to be like, let's sit down and I'll explain to you all about our order and our powers. And, you know, like that would never happen. So through this, this, he makes her agree before before they start that she's going to tell them it's like okay i can buy that yep so patience ends with this kind of ominous quote she says the only thing i can promise with absolute certainty is that what i need to do when we reach the ship they're going to heal him on a ship will be one of the worst things that's ever happened to you and he's like well i've had a lot of bad things happen to me been literally drowned in horse piss yeah good point and she knows that, though. So well, and things I, are going to get worse than horse piss. Well, chapter three. We'll and see. I think the question is, is she referencing what's going to happen as a part of the healing? Oh, or is she referencing what's going to happen, you know, over the remainder of his short, miserable life? Good question. So let's get back to fixing the election. And why do you think that that violates the mandates of the 13th? I might be reaching a little here. I like it when you reach. (laughs) You're cute when you reach. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So it just seems to me that 
if they're asking them to rig an election, it can't be in the interest of the people being ruled in Carthane. Okay, so that is a good point. I would argue that the mandates of the 13th don't have anything to do with what's good for the people. It's I would not disagree. About, it's not about supporting the common people. I would disagree. I would disagree with your disagreement. Well, we'll just have to disagree to disagree then. We could thumb wrestle. Can we, do we have a video camera in here? <laughs> no, I think that the mandates are the 13th are, number one, thieves prosper. Not the normal people. But the thieves prosper. So, and patience says, what is government but theft by consent? So that's an interesting point. And two, that the rich remember. So this isn't about, the, the 13th God is not about like the common people or just just the thieves portion of the common people are, are who they need to look out for. I can't, so I told you I, I was reaching a little bit. And I can't deny that what you're saying is true. I would say, and this goes back to something we started at the very beginning of the lives of Locke Lamora, that when your society is so corrupt, then the thieves are the people who are fighting for the little man. And making the rich remember anything you're doing to stick it to the rich and stick it to the rulers is it's a zero-sum game, is ipso facto to the benefit of the of the of the little person yeah i don't know that i don't think i agree with that because i mm -hmm. think that the thieves they'll rob the little person as much as they'll rob a rich person i i mean i think i understand what you're saying but i don't think that fixing this election either way unless it's to bring down the entire political system fixing this election for one party or the other doesn't seem to matter to the to the people who are being governed. Um, it sounds like this government kind of takes care of its people. It's pretty stable. It's a pretty stable and a safe place to live. So, I mean, they do mention that it sucks for the people who think their vote matters. But it's going to be an interesting commentary, I think, on our political process. We know Scott Lynch has strong opinions about that. So he does. It'll be interesting to see. He's an old line Whig. <laughs> Everybody knows it. All right, so are you ready for a game? Do you have any more thoughts about the uh, do you wanna do do you want to do the game or you do do the predictions first? What? Game, then predictions. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Okay. So this game this is This is called... exciting to me. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you, but interrupting so much. We <laughs> Come on, this is what I do. You know this. In life, yes. I know. So I love you. Yeah, I love you too. So we have had lots of games and I'm usually on the other side of this. So this is very fun for me. Very excited. Go ahead. All right. So this game is called Italian Pasta Dish or Scott Lynch Landmark. <laughs> <laughs> You got the rigatones. <laughs> so, are you ready? I'm, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna name some names. So, f for the record, yeah, I'm just gonna call it out ahead of time. Uh -huh. How many questions do you have? Eight. I'm gonna get eight of those fuckers right. <laughs> okay, all right. I, you know your Italian pasta. I like dishes. some goddamn pasta. All right. Are you ready? Number I'm one. Re Here we go. Give it to me. Vezione vero. That is one hundred percent. Scott Lynch. 
it is a pasta dish. Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It sounds like a Scottish landmark, though, doesn't it? That's (sighs) why it's funny. Okay, ready? Okay. Velvarazo. Okay, Scotland. Okay. Yeah. Cavendria. Scotland. Mm-hmm. Rizzo Valdostano. That's pasta. <laughs> Mon Magisteria. Scotland. Minestra di Sessi. Oh, that's definitely pasta. <laughs> Mara Camazora. Scotland. Uh, Stracciatella. Pasta. Cavendria. Uh, Scotland. God damn, if it wasn't for that first one. Just, that was tough. That was tricky, right? <laughs> it, you know, it's only because I bragged about it, it yeah. that that happened. <laughs> if I'd have been like, well, I don't know if I'm going to do any good. <laughs> well done. Oh, thank you. Well done. Seven out of eight. Okay. Lay your predictions on us for, for okay. next time. So I had a hard time with predictions this time. It's the beginning of it's the beginning of a book. Plus, Scott Lynch's stuff is just really difficult to predict anyway, right? Because he doesn't really want to give you a lot of foreshadowing. He wants to surprise you with stuff. But these are, I guess, my predictions, for lack of a better word. The first is that I think I think Locke is going to fall into the toxically nice guy category in his relationship with Beth. I think he's going to, he's going to fall in love or he's falling in love with this fantastic projection of who he wants her to be, not who she actually is. So sort of like in the, in the Hellboy movies, Hellboy and Elizabeth, that sort of dynamic where, where he is going to in, trying to be you know kind of the nice guy he's actually going to be putting her in a really messed up situation and that's why she's not fucking around like both and denna a, a little a little bit like that but i, I don't think I, I think the quoth and denna thing it's is is a little bit different so that's that's number one i because I don't, I don't really think that i don't really think she likes Locke. I mean, not from what I can tell at this point. So my next one is if they don't find a way to subvert this thing that the Bonds Magi want them to do, if they don't if they don't find a way to rig this election in a way that's I just I feel like they can't go along and won't go along with just rigging the election. Something else has got to happen or else it's going to end up very, very tragically for Jean and Locke. I don't know what that is, but they will not just go in there and rig the election for her. There's going to be there's going to be a cost to the to patients and the bonds magi when they win. Don't know what that'll be. That's a good prediction. So I also struggle with this one. This isn't so much a prediction as. I guess a comment. I, I can't help but think that this is exactly where the Bonds Magi wanted them to be. Because after the lies of Locke Lamour and they make this enemy of the Bonds Magi, shit just pretty much continuously goes downhill for them until Locke is literally two days from dying in a fucking gutter. 
they have to leave their home. They end up investing all this time into stealing paintings that are really not worth a whole lot. They get poisoned. They get caught. They end up, you know, spending all their money to try to cure this thing, end up in this shithole town where, you know, the right people of Lachane, you know, kick them out, and that's when they swoop in. You know, it seems to me like that was very deliberate. And yet, the problem with that theory is if they really wanted to do that to somehow hurt them or get over on them, that is such a long-ass way to go. That's such a convoluted fucking way to go just to torture somebody, right? So, I mean, they like death and, and destruction just as much as the nice people. As the, the next bad guy, if they really wanted to destroy these guys, they'd capture and kill them and mutilate them just like anybody other, other bad guy would go. So I can't really believe that it's all part of some deliberate plot to drive them crazy because it just seems ludicrous that you would go that far. So I have to accept it that this was just that what she's saying on the face of it is accurate. We will see. So I guess my prediction is she's not lying. All right. Quality predictions. (sighs) That's it. Okay. Would you like to hear some listener interactions? You know I would. All right, first, I think we have to give a shout out to the Maryland contingent of the Paprika group. Oh, yeah, holla. Right? So so Liz and I today went out and got to meet some of the folks uh, who are a part of that group and that Facebook group and part of the podcast group. Um, we got to meet Daryl, who's been uh, active with our podcast from the very beginning. Uh, a bunch of other people, Damone. Adrian. Jetty. Mm-hmm. So too many people for us to be able to name them all. But we went out, spent some time with those folks, had a blast. Could not have been cooler people. It could not have been. Couldn't have been. Against the laws of physics. Nope. For there to be a cooler bunch of people. Not, not possible. They'd have had to have been penguins. So I was thinking we were on the way home and I was like, you know, when you meet people from the internet, you just really don't know how it's going to go. It could go really well or you could end up staring across the table at strangers and it could be super awkward. And then as I'm saying it, I'm like, wait a minute, I've never, this is the only time I've ever met strangers from the internet. (laughs) So one for one been an awesome experience so really good people so shout out to you guys um we had such a blast and we look forward to doing it again the other thing i want to do is i want to thank some of the folks we haven't done this for a while folks who are some new likes on our facebook page so thank you on our facebook page to jim albright to ashley ketchum to ballard medette and to laura weston Welcome to the Duke and Duchess family. And also on our Facebook group page, we have several new folks as well. So welcome there as well to Ashley Ketchum, uh, to Ben McMahon, to Zachary Trinkle, and to, I am, I hope I don't mispronounce this, but to 
categorically cochineal. So all part of the Duke and Duchess family, thank you guys. Uh, We love you, and we look forward to spending more time chatting with you. So on Facebook, Theo, giving his notes for this section, says, Really? Back to the thief maker? I was sort of hoping we had left this stuff behind. So isn't that interesting? interesting. It's like the opposite of what we just said. He says, anyway, didn't really like this prologue a great deal for a few reasons. One, Locke doesn't understand why Sabbath is weird about him. Thiefmaker implies that these three have a special job, but it doesn't really seem that way. He's just asking Sabbath to stop him from being idiots. Pretty much. Yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what it is. He said he felt like Sabbath, uh, you know, joining the gentleman bastards and there really only being one place to get the talent from just felt a little clunky. And then when he gets to the interlude, he says, Ugh, not more interludes. <laughs> he says, regarding Sabbath's comment that Galdo is about to lose when they're playing uh, whatever the equivalent of chess there is, uh, he says, I don't know, it feels a bit like he's putting Sabbath into that hyper good female role trope where she's not really got any faults. You know what I mean? We've talked about that. We have. So we'll have to see what happens. We, we haven't really spent a lot of time there. And in his prediction, he says, I feel like she really is double-crossing them. I just see how she couldn't be. It's her own son, no matter if they didn't get along. So again, we really kind of went completely different directions uh, with Theo this time. So that's, that's funny. It'll be interesting to see how that, how that plays out. So GuitarCast, who is ran by... Andy Keithley, it's a good guitar podcast, a really good one, by the way, too. If you're if you're a music fan, check them out. But they said uh, smart to have an open mind uh, for thieves. Red Seas feels like a tangent from the main storyline. Thieves is a big return to the greater mystery and the story that was set up in lies, in my opinion. So far, to me, that's what it feels like. Yes, and that's good, in my opinion. So that is what we have for listener interactions. Do you have anything else? I do not. Okay. You can find us on our website at the Duke and Duchess podcast.com. Also on Twitter at the D and D podcast. That's D as in David and as in Nancy D as in David podcast on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. Don't forget to join our Facebook group page. And if you need advice about your love life, your fantasy novel, why your comic book superhero only has the power to calm jittery squirrels. <laughs> Ask the Duchess by emailing us at advice at the Duke and Duchess podcast.com. If you don't like us, we also set up an email address for that. You know what it is? What is it? It's don't give a shit at Duke and Duchess podcast.com. <laughs> that, by the way, is true. Nice. So try it. <laughs> test me all right good night everybody good night